This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Greg Cusimano out of Alabama. Uh, Greg is not only a great trial lawyer, but he's also done a ton of focus group research and consulting, uh, probably done more focus groups than anyone else I know, and has learned a lot about you know, how juries make decisions and why we win and lose cases, and he's agreed to come talk to us. How are you doing today, Greg? Well, I'm good today. I'm proud to be above ground. Yeah. So you have developed, uh, along with like, David Winter and some other lawyers, but uh, you've been the driving force behind developing what's called the jury bias model? Yeah, it was really fascinating. Uh, we did develop it uh, along with David. Actually, it started off as being a committee of AAJ or what was then uh, American Trial Lawyers Association. I chaired it, had some great lawyers from around the country, but in a short period of time, they were too busy making money <laughs> and and sort of quit coming to meetings. So David and I uh, sort of developed as co-chairs and, and went from there. David Winters from Phoenix, Arizona. You know, David? I know I've heard him speak. I've not had the uh, the chance to meet him yet, but I'm hoping that's one of the great things about this podcast is I get to meet a lot of the great trial lawyers uh, and and learn from them. Uh, so maybe, hopefully I'll get an opportunity to talk to him again someday. Yeah, I'm sort of envious of what you're doing. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fun. I, I started on a lark and it's just the last three years it's really turned into something and it's... Uh, I'm so glad I'm doing it because I'm, I'm I'm hoping the listeners are getting something out of it too. But I'm, I'm even if nobody listened to it, it would be totally worth my time because I've learned so much. <laughs> so, uh, what inspired y'all to do the research that led to the jury bias model? Well, you know, a number of years ago, you probably aren't old enough to remember, although it's not a whole lot better now. But um, there was a period of time after several presidents and and a lot of tort form rhetoric that lawyers, good lawyers started losing good cases. And really, nobody seemed to know why. I mean, it, it was happening all over the country and in almost every jurisdiction. They were either losing a case or um, they were getting a lot less than they expected to from a plaintiff standpoint. And um, I was on the uh, National uh, Trial Lawyers Conference, the Education Committee of of AAJ, and we were just discussing it. And Larry Stewart was the president uh, of of, uh, American Trial Lawyers Association at that time, and we were on the National College of Advocacy. And he said, um, well, why don't you chair a committee and try to figure out what's happened, what's Uh going on? And I said, well, can I pick my committee members? He said, yes. So we started that way. And it, and actually, we worked on this thing for years and turned out, as I said, David and I did most of the work, but um, we worked on it for years and figured out a way. We we're doing most of the research out of our pocket, but we figured out a way to um, develop a program that people would would pay for through the National College of Advocacy to do uh, great numbers of focus groups. And we were hiring trial consultants, or actually, they were volunteering their time. And so we were debriefing them. And that's how we started off in our research. So how many, uh, how many trial, I mean, focus groups do you think you've done through this process? Any idea? Oh, gosh, I don't know. We did... Uh, the very first case workshop program we had, we had probably 30 lawyers and did 60 focus groups in three, four days. 
but we had a number of other trial consultants that came in to do it. All kinds of cases, med mal case, train case, wreck case, products liability cases, premises liability cases. And, and then we debriefed the lawyers and the trial consultants about what they were seeing. So probably, I don't know, easily, I would, I would say 750 to 1,000 as we were developing this model, we'd, we'd done that many. Wow. So what did you learn about why people were, good lawyers were losing good cases? Well, what we learned, and um, the first thing we discovered is what kind of focus groups we needed to do. Because doing the traditional focus groups where the lawyers argued, we were having trouble understanding what the potential jurors were believing. So we developed a focus group we call concept focus group, where we sort of unpack the facts of a case fact at a time to try to determine the impact of each of the facts to discover what your what matters to a jury, a potential jury, rather than the lawyer. Oftentimes, what the lawyers think is important is not at all what a jury thinks is important. Uh-huh. So what we discovered was that no matter where we were in the country, no matter what kind of case, there was certain language being used in attitudes and beliefs that we kept finding in the potential jurors that that we thought basically was anti-plaintiff, was pro-defendant and more so than it was um, fair or pro to the plaintiff. And a lot of it was result result of the tort reform rhetoric, rhetoric that had been going on for years and years and TV ads and shows and all kind of orchestrated work to what we thought was affect the the thinking attitudes and beliefs of juries towards civil lawsuits as well as lawyers. So what are some of the uh, the beliefs or biases that that make a lot of jurors, you know, initially at least pro-defense? Well, uh, what we found was we used to call these untried issues because what we discovered is these things were very important to a potential jury but not necessarily the lawyer. So they would try the case and they would never deal with these issues. And the issues were causing them oftentimes to win or lose and they wouldn't know why. An issue like personal responsibility. Um, Jurors were extremely, and still are, hadn't changed, conscious of, of the responsibility of the plaintiff and the defendant. But when people say personal responsibility, they don't say corporate responsibility. They say personal responsibility. And and so that was one of the things that we discovered and and figured out how to deal with. Another one is suspicion. Uh, Jurors are very, very suspicious of lawyers, particularly plaintiff's lawyers, but all lawyers. They're suspicious of the courts. They're suspicious of judges. They're suspicious of the system. So things that a lawyer might or might not do that peak that suspicion could work for or against either a plaintiff or a defense lawyer. Victimization. Um, we found it basically in the way they talked, many jurors felt victim to the system. And it was sort of an unconscious uh, attitude or belief. They felt like that that lawyers were running OBGYN doctors out of their area. They couldn't get a doctor. They thought the cost of automobiles and products were going up because of of lawsuits. And so they felt themselves a victim to the process. Another one was uh, something we call stuff happens to be socially polite. Yeah. Um, There were a number of, of, of potential jurors that just felt like, you know, bad things happen and it's part of life you know, and it's God's will, or it's just the way it is. And society can't take care and compensate everybody because something bad happened to them. That's just the way, way it is. And then another was blame the plaintiff, which was really interesting. And we found out had a tremendous uh, psychological uh, basis for that. 
And that is people in general don't like to think that bad things happen to good people. So normally lawyers on either side want to have jurors that tend to be like their client or their party. But if something terrible happens to someone that um, is similar to one of the jurors and it was no fault of their own, then unconsciously they think, gosh, that could happen to me. That could happen to my family, my child, my mother, my brother, my sister. And so they tend to want to find a way to distance themselves from that possibly happening to them. Uh, social science uh, is called that defensive attribution where they would look for ways to blame the plaintiff. I wouldn't have done that. I would have got a second opinion. I wouldn't have allowed that doctor to operate on me without getting a second opinion. Or I wouldn't have jerked to the left to miss that puppy that ran out in front of me and flipped over. I, I would have understood that was dangerous. I probably would have just gone forward and run over the dog. Um, all those kinds of things that they would be looking for ways to blame the plaintiff. So those were basically the five attitudes and beliefs that we initially, we've learned there's more, but those were the five initially we learned um, that would we call sort of anti-plaintiff attitudes. And so I guess we know that a lot of jurors and, and those of us who've tried cases and, and are done focus groups, you see it, uh, you know, we have these existing attitudes and a lot of jurors that make them predisposed to rule against us. What can we do about it? Well, there's all kinds of stuff you can do about it. Uh, we developed, you know, the, 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 the first part of that model, which are those five attitudes and beliefs, didn't take long to figure out. <laughs> I mean, we were hearing the comments of all these people, and it, and it didn't take long to figure that out. What was more difficult was to figure out how to counter them yeah, and how to deal with them. So we sort of came up with, um, at that time, now there's, again, there's more, we've developed it further, but came up with uh, something we call the 10 commandments or uh, the 10 principles, or basically their 10 decision-making uh, events or aspects that we know from social science tend to work. Okay. And we developed those to try to use, um, you know, the other way around. We call that part two of the model. Okay. So the, I guess, so the 10 commandments are kind of the building blocks for how you get past the, uh, overcome the biases that are already there. Right. It, what we learned when I say overcome the biases, um, that's what they used to call the program overcoming jury bias that marketing people came up with that. Okay. We didn't. You you really don't overcome the biases. You 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 just present your case in a way that from social science um, you learn tends to direct or lead the the potential juror in a in a different way. You know, to start off with the ten principles, all of that the ten principles come down to the trial story developing a trial story and how would you develop a trial story? Where do you start it? How do you sequence the facts? Uh, how do you frame it? And um, so that was part of it was the trial story was the first commandment was to develop the trial story. It was sort of confusing to some people because they thought, okay, we develop a trial story and now we're there. And we would say, oh, no, no, the trial story is just like the facts in the case. They can always be changed. It can always be added to. They can always have some deleted. So you work through the trial story by, you know, doing jury research. That was the second part of the second aspect of that is, is doing the kind of, of, of research that you could use, for example, there's a principle called the confirmation principle, which uh, juries or all of us tend to confirm ideas that we already have, confirm our beliefs. And once that trial story is 
is set in a person's mind and they confirm that belief, it's pretty hard to change it. So in order to determine that, you had to figure out what do people believe? What, what do people believe? And that was part of the jury research aspect of trying to determine the beliefs of your potential juror. There's an economist and his name, I can't remember right now, back late 1800s, early 1900s, made a statement that for those who believe, no proof is necessary. Yeah. For those who do not believe, no proof is possible. So the point was try to determine those beliefs. Another one of those commandments was framing. Frame those beliefs to be consistent with what they already believe. What do you mean by framing? Well, you know, framing, you can take the same set of facts and state it in a, in a different way and get a different conclusion. Exact same set of facts. So we came up, one of our commandments was framing. Uh, now, Mark Mandel has written two books on framing. I mean, yeah. he's taken that one aspect and just expanded it beyond belief. Beautiful books. There were other books on framing, but not directly related to the law. So that's what we mean by, by framing. Yeah, his, his stuff has been just little things I learned from him, like... Uh... You know, I won't say just what injuries did, did Jose suffer anymore. I'll say when the when the company driver ran the stop sign, what injuries did he cause Jose? Right. Because we want to frame it back towards the liability part and take the take it off of Jose. Right. Right. And in those are those were all of these are principles you can use that affect decision making that we set out as our ten. Ten Commandments. Um, for example, availability principle. Um, that is a bias or principle that people think about and talk about information that's available to their memory. So when you're ordering your case, you can have a tremendous effect on what the jury thinks and talks about based on the, the sequence and the order of the presentation you make. Um, another one was uh, uh, fundamental attribution error, FAE. Fundamental attribution error is, is that most people, when they look at a certain set of circumstances or a person, attribute responsibility to the person rather than the situation. And science shows that most normal people will, will react in a very similar way if they're under the same set of circumstances and situation. So if you've got in your case a fact pattern that you think they're going to blame the person rather than the situation, you need to use the framing and the other aspects to change it around so you deal more with the situation rather than allowing them to blame it on the person. Now, depending on which side you're on, if you're on the defense side, you, you would like it to blame the plaintiff. If you're on the plaintiff side, you want them to blame the defendant. So you, you frame your case and order your facts and presentation to do that. That's another one of those uh, commandments that we had. What are some things people do, you know, in putting together a trial story that, that backfire on them, that, that actually kind of playing into the pre-existing pro-defense biases? Well, one thing that I know I did, and most most lawyers do, sometimes they have some really good facts and good information and they hold it. They either want to uh, bring it up toward the end of the case to sort of shock a jury and uh, or they want to um, use it in rebuttal and we found that from the availability principle, the opening statement's critical. You want the, the facts to be consistent, um, complete, incredible. And you want them to close that story, close it up on the story. So you, you don't want to save your best stuff later because we know Belief perseverance, once they adopt that story, and confirmation principle, they'll hold to it. 
So you want your you want them early on to buy your story. What what jurors do, uh, facts and information that's consistent with their beliefs, they absorb it like a sponge. And if it's not consistent with their beliefs, uh, it's like a shield. It bounces off. They just take it and throw it away because that doesn't fit. <laughs> you know. So so you want your template to be together. Sort of like, you know, when we were kids, and I don't know if they still have it, they used to have wooden pieces to a puzzle, and mm-hmm. it was all the outside of the puzzle was already designed. It was pretty easy to figure out where those pieces go. You want to make your case uh, a problem that is easily solved by the jury. <laughs> yeah. So you want to set that up so they just, those pieces fall right where they need to go. How about sequencing? What are some things we can do? Yeah, in sequencing that either help or hurt our cases? Well, again, um, oftentimes one of the problems we used to have in sequencing is we'd start the case talking about our client. We talk a lot about our client. And there's um, something called counterfactual thinking. And what counterfactual thinking is, is when something terrible happens, all of us, including juries. And right now we could be thinking about Tiger Woods. Prior to his crash, what happened? Was he on the phone? Uh, did he doze off? And what juries do, they will, they will make up facts to avoid what happened. And that's where they'll place the blame and responsibility. So if your case is, you start talking all about your client, if you're a plaintiff, you're representing the plaintiff and you're talking about your client and something horrible happened, they're going to, they've only got your client to think about. So they're going to start trying to say, well, if only the client had done this, if only they'd run over that dog instead of swerving to the left and then the right, and they wouldn't have rolled over. If only they had checked their tires like they should have, they wouldn't have had that crash because the tire came apart. So, one of the things we do on sequencing, and, and all of these are tools, not rules. There's no hard and fast road. You got to think about it. But one of the things we do is we make our plaintiff in the center of the case that ultimately resulted in tragedy. And the jury is trying to undo that. And the only thing they can change is the conduct of the plaintiff. If you're representing the plaintiff, you want to spend your time on the conduct of the defendant and the damage to the plaintiff. So they could say, well, if only Ford had changed the uh, the gravity of weight when they made, made that SUV six years ago, this wouldn't have happened. So you, you sequence your case in the order so the focus is on the conduct of the defendant rather than the plaintiff. I think that's why the the stipulated liability case is so hard. Absolutely, uh, they try to keep you from talking about what they did wrong. Absolutely, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So we talked about composing a trial story, uh, and you talk about illicit confirmation as the Second Commandment. What is that? That's because of the confirmation principle. That's why you have to do research to find out what they believe and try to present your case in a way that is a hand in glove to what they already believe. If it's, if it's consistent, you know, I used to say, give an example, if, if you're standing on one side of a fast moving stream or, or maybe 60 foot body of water, and you're trying to get in a particular place across the stream, 
it's pretty easy to get there if the water is flowing in the way you want to go. Then you just back up, go way to the left to where you want to go, and you just jump in and sort of paddle over there. But if if where you want to go is upstream and you're going to jump in there, you're going to have a tough time if you don't drown trying to fight against the stream to get there. We don't want to browbeat our jury. Yeah. So we need to know which way the water's flowing, what their thinking is, so we can make our facts as consistent with their pre prior thinking as we can. So what do we do to learn what our jurors' prior thinking is likely to be? Well, it, there's a lot of ways to do that. It depends on what you can afford. We think concept focus groups is a gold standard. Um, and there's various steps we would go through. First, concept to find out what their attitudes and beliefs are. And um, but if that's something you can't afford and we all know, I mean, I'm, I practice in a small town. I've got cases I can't afford to even do my own focus groups on, but I don't. I, I really I'm not an advocate of doing your own focus group because if you're like me, you get so attached to your client. You see what you want to see. You, you can't you just can't be objective enough to do your own focus group. But focus groups one way. If you've got the money and can afford it, you do a series of those, you do surveys. If you can't, then you you try out your case on your friends, your family, your relatives. You see an issue that's in the paper and you go online and see what all the comments are. You 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 look at a newspaper article, you listen to radio, talk radio. You you, you get all the information you can as to what the people in that venue think and believe about things. Try to learn that so you can present the case in a way that's palatable and acceptable to them. Um, go to a birthday party for a child or a grandkid and start throwing out some stuff and listen to the parents talk. You know, just learn all you can about the thinking of the people in that community because it's different oftentimes. Yeah, I, I think it is so important to learn what, you know, we get in this bubble of everyone thinking similar thoughts, especially you know, in the trial lawyer community, you, you sometimes get in a really deep blue bubble. Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I've got people I work with and, you know, my wife even like, why do you watch Fox News? So why do you read Fox News on, you know? Well, because I want to know what are the terms? What is the language? What, you know, what are other people thinking about these issues? Because, you know, I'm, in most of Texas, I'm going to have as, at least as many, if not more, Fox News viewers than I am going to have CNN viewers. Absolutely. I guess it's changed, but now Rush Limbaugh's gone. But I used to ask a jury when I was doing Vardyar, uh, how many of you are ditto heads? And I'd raise my hand because people used to call into Rush and say ditto. I remember. <laughs> and that one question, I could learn a lot about the beliefs of people that were on the jury. And it doesn't even mean they're going to be bad jurors. It just... No. But it tells you who they are, and it, and it gives you an idea of how to approach your case. Now, uh, you said you're not a big fan of doing your own focus groups just because it's just too hard to separate yourself? I can do, if I have a case that I think is going to be really expensive, we've started doing focus groups before we take it. It saved us a lot of money <laughs> over the years yeah. to find out that I couldn't win the case. But I can do my own then, but once I'm involved in the case, I can't. I learned that the hard way. I had other people that I, I trusted sit with me while I did the focus group, and they would explain to me how how I, I managed to manipulate those people to what I wanted them to hear, what I wanted to hear. Uh, it's just really hard to do your own fo focus group for your own clients if you care about the people you represent, and most of us do. So no, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of it. It's not the mechanics of it, it's just you can't do it. You can't get the yeah. information because you prejudice your own case in your favor. Yeah, and I agree that you know on, on the cases that justify, I mean, you have to have a case that justifies it and you need to be at a point in your career where you've got the cash right. uh, to bring in you know, outside people because they, they do do a better job. And and they also a lot of them give you great insight afterwards. Right. Uh, 
but what do you think about the idea of getting another lawyer? You know, if, you, if the case doesn't justify that, or maybe you're just at a point in your career where you just don't have that kind of cash sitting around, uh, of getting another lawyer, uh, either at your firm or you know, getting a buddy who's not doesn't know the plaintiff, is not involved in the case, that maybe they could be a little less. I think that's much better. That's much much better. Now, here's the. Here's the downside. Well, I don't want to say it's a downside because I think it'd be better to do that than not do anything. But what I learned uh, over the years is how little I knew. Um, I would hear something in a focus group early on, and I would think it meant that it clearly told me I needed to do ABC. And now I've learned from the social science and all the study that I've done, that that's not what it meant. Most people, um, they say 67 to 80% of the decisions you make, you don't know why you make them. I mean, if, if you bought, if you'd bought a new car, Michael, and I said, uh, tell me why you bought that Lexus, blah, 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 blah. You're going to tell me. But the, the odds are that what you say is not true. You probably don't know why you bought it. Yeah, there's so many underlying reasons that we are motivated to do things um, one way or the other. So the danger is, even if you get somebody else, if if they haven't studied this stuff, then they can lead you in the, in the wrong direction. I still think it's probably better than doing nothing. You're going to get some insight. You just got to be careful. A focus group. Is, is a qualitative study, not a quantitative study. Even in my consulting for winning works, I have lawyers that say, well, it's pretty obvious we need young women. And I'll say, no, no, no. You can't predict from having 10 people in a focus group. That's not, uh, that's that end. The number's not enough to predict that that just because you had some young women that were good on your case. That's the other problem people do. They they extrapolate from that rather than getting the the ideas and the, the way they talk and the, the approach and which is what we really learn in those basic concept focus groups. Yeah one thing I found on concept focus groups is I always get something out of them even you know I, I'm I'm thinking I did the it was my first oil field explosion case and you know when I went back and watched the video a year later I had all the facts wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, we were just starting. I didn't, you know, what, what, what I thought had happened was not what happened. Um, only three people showed up <laughs> for it, but I still learned a ton that we oh, then yeah. were able to go. And, you know, we realized that one in that particular community, I mean, our, our jury pool was going to know a lot about the oil field because uh, it was an oil field town. That's where like a lot of people worked. And um, we just learned a lot about what terms they used. you know, what biases they had against certain people and certain companies and what they didn't. I just, it was just really, really useful, even though objectively, I mean, like I said, we were supposed to have 12 people, only three showed up. I had most of the facts wrong because uh, we hadn't done much discovery yet. And I didn't really understand how everything worked yet. And uh, But I still got a lot out of it. Now, if that was the only one we did, I think we did like 20 in that case before it was done. Yeah. If you studied a little bit of this, you're going to get help from a focus group especially if you have somebody else do it for you, even if it's somebody else in your firm is not tied into the case. Uh, you just got to be careful not to jump to a conclusion based on a small number or based on reasoning that, let me give you an example, a quick example. We did some uh, cases here years ago for a firm. One of the first times I started doing focus groups and the jury just came up with a hundred million dollars. And I had the, 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 the most closely contact people that I had, the most right wing folks that I got on that focus group. And so the, the plaintiff's lawyers just thought, you know, this is what we need. This is exactly what we need to do. And I kept saying, no, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So, we ended up doing another one and we didn't argue the plaintiff side and they came up with $500 million. <laughs> and so uh, finally we figured it out. It was a, 
a toxic tort case. And in, in this particular county, we'd had a steel mill that had operated here for years and put all kind of stuff and polluted the water, put all kind of stuff in the air. It was really bad, but folks made so much money, everybody just overlooked it. They didn't care. I mean, they, it, that paid good and people just didn't care. Well, it went down. It left all kinds of people out of the job. It, it left pensions out. People that had been had workers' compensation, they had put up their own bond rather than having insurance. They didn't have people to cover the compensation. And underlying, this community was furious about it. It was never expressed in the focus group, never at all expressed. But this was the worst place the defendants could have ever moved. They moved from the place that had had where the, the pollution had occurred to here, and the judge moved it, and it turned out to be the worst move they ever made. But we didn't, we couldn't figure it out. If we had attributed what the lawyers did on that case, we'd have been all wrong. You know, yeah. it was something none of us even recognized. Well, going back to your Ten Commandments. We talked about remember the beliefs, persevere, sequence available evidence. Then the next one's number five is heed the norm. What does heed the norm mean? Okay. Uh, there is something called the norm bias or norm principle. And I can give you sort of some rules of thumb on that. If the conduct of the defendant is pretty much according to the norm, juries are not likely to find liability. It goes back to rules of the road. I mean, that, that book was written after we did this. And I think a lot of the, the idea of rules of the road uh, fits the norm principle. If, if the conduct of the defendant is an exception to the rule, everybody does it this way, but this defendant did it a different way, they're more likely to find the defendant responsible. The same applies for the plaintiff. You want your plaintiff's conduct, if you're representing the plaintiff, to be a conduct that most normal people would engage in. You wouldn't do anything any different, anything unreasonable, just the way anybody else would do it. And the defendant's was the exception. If the defendant's conduct complies with the norm, everybody's doing it, a jury's not likely to find liability. So that's heed the norm that's what makes so many product cases tough when you know there's a, a great fix out there but lots not, no one's using it you know that's why the standards ANSI, if they're complying with all that makes that so much harder to win it makes it much more difficult i had a what i thought was a wonderful case and i i just what do they say swinging at windmills or whatever they yeah. talk about that it had a uh, a, a fellow on the back of a garbage truck that was putting garbage in the back and crashed in the crashed into the back of it, another car and amputated the leg. I thought it was a wonderful case. I kept doing focus groups and, and, and getting bad results. I, I did the focus groups. Then I did a mini mock trial argument structured. I'd lose it, losing, losing, losing. I couldn't figure out why. I didn't know about the norm principle then. I mean, everybody in this part of it, the, they've changed it now. But at that time, every garbage truck anybody would seen had two people right on the back of it, right on the back of it. And they'd get off and put the garbage in. Well, they'd cross the street, they could get hit. They'd hit a curb and they could fall off. They'd fall in the hamper. I mean, it was the highest injury of any class of workers in the United States, sanitation workers on the back of garbage trucks. But you could not get 12 people <laughs> to agree because it was the norm. It was the norm. Took me a long time because I ended up taking three or four of those before I finally thought, how many times do you have to get your head beat in before you realize this is not the way to go? <laughs> I was a believer. Yeah, we've I know there's some few cases uh, that we've totally redone our theories based on that. You know, we we can't do like a regular product defect because it complies with the standard and that's how most people do it. And so 
we kind of had to say, well, maybe it's the the advice of what product to buy. You know, this right. you can have this product for some things, but for this environment, it wasn't the right product. And so, if I had understood this at the time, I think I could have framed my case differently and done okay. But I, it was so obvious to me that this was dangerous to have people hanging off the back of a truck where a bumper a bumper ought to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had seat belts inside of it. We wouldn't let firemen ride on the back, but it was fine for garbage men to do that. You know, crazy. Absolutely. Are you interested in attending Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp? This year, we'll be hosting the seminar in San Antonio, Texas on May 20th, 2021. In-person seating is available, but will be limited per state guidelines in order to provide a safe event. And if you'd like to attend virtually, we'll be offering another professionally produced seminar available via Zoom. For more information, visit www.bigrigbootcamp.com to sign up for our mailing list and find out details as soon as they're available. The seventh commandment is plan for a hindsight bias. What does that mean? If you can frame your case or present your case in a way that a jury would think, well, I know that's going to happen. I knew that was going to happen. That's the hindsight bias. It's, it's like a football game if you're a football fan and the people go for it on the fourth down when they should have kicked the field goal because it didn't make it or vice versa. No right. matter what happens, you don't think about the other 59 minutes of the game. You think they should have done such and such and you, you put the blame there. So, Normally, if you're representing the plaintiff and you structure your case using these other things that I told you about, where, you know, let's say it's a a vehicle design case, you go back six years where they made the decision. You don't even talk about what happened on the day of the injury, about what when they were in the boardroom on August 6, 2003, trying to decide whether they should lengthen the wheelbase or lower the center of gravity on on the SUV and the decisions they made and they they chose not to do it and and you take that forward and maybe another situation where this happened and uh, they looked at it again and they decided not to do it and you take it from there what you're doing is presenting uh, alternatives if they had chose to do it, then this wouldn't happen. If they chose this, it wouldn't happen. If they chose this. So then you get to the day you're going to talk about what happened. Uh, Jane Doe was 68 years old and she was driving down 11th street on the way to church. And the dog ran out in front of her before you even tell them what happened. They know that because of the defect in the vehicle is the reason she rolled because you've, you've shown that, that there were six alternatives, six ways that the defendant could have avoided what happened and they didn't. So you're using the hindsight principle. They knew what happened before you even tell them. And it's very powerful to use. And that's actually one of the biases that helps us. Yeah, well, it can go either way, depending That's on. True. It could be hindsight about our client, what they. Yeah. Why, why didn't our people do it? You know, that defensive attribution I talked about, the not me bias. It depends on the, the order you present your case and the way the defense argues it, too. You could fall into that trap where you talked all about your client and you talk about what happened that day before you ever start talking about what, what, uh, the automobile people did. And now you're the subject of the hindsight. If only she had uh, left church on time, left to go to church on time. If only she'd gone ahead and run over the dog. Yeah. Now your eighth commandment is create empathy. What is that? Well, what we have learned um, is that people make decisions. If you read any of the, Uh, Danny Kahneman's work, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow. Uh, Most of the decision-making is intuitive. And that's, they call that system one. Logical and reasonable is called system two. 
depending on where you, where you are, what you need, if you need them to analyze your case from a logical, reasonable standpoint and not an emotional standpoint, this sounds counterintuitive, but if you can get them to project empathy, put themselves in your client's position, they will begin to use more logic and analyze rather than a national a reaction to it. So empathy, not sympathy. Sympathy is what they drop in the tin cup as they walk past somebody who's maybe begging on the street. But empathy is when they put themselves or their family in that position in, in a way that helps you get them to analyze the case the way you want them to analyze it. You, you got a problem there with defensive attribution, which I explained to you earlier, that if this can happen to them through no fault of their own, it can happen to me. So they would say your client should do something else. But it's important to understand and not argue for sympathy, but empathy. What are some things we can do to kind of create empathy with our jurors? Well, you know, one thing is 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 maybe use some abstract arguments rather than as personal. You know, what would so-and-so think or feel about such and such? Do it more abstract or or even to create it is if if you describe what what happened and, and how it happened and the hospitalization, you know, you might say, um, you know, you can just imagine what the family thought when they had to go in that hospital and walk down that long hall, knowing they were going to see their mother or their father, you know, that, that creates empathy, but you don't do it. You don't do it personally because they'll react to it, but you, you put it in a third person. I wonder, you can imagine what they would have thought, how they would have considered it. It's easier for them to do that than deal with it personally. That makes sense. Now, the ninth one is, this is one of my favorites, actually, drop the anchor. Anchoring principle, yeah. Well, what we have learned is that juries, you know, this could be helpful or hurtful, depending on which side you're on or what, you, you know, I, my my work is more from the plaintiff. I do more plaintiff's work and I, and I uh, consult more on plaintiff case. Well, I don't consult on the defendant personal injury case. I just don't do it. If, if it's one corporation against another, I'll do it, but not, I will not represent, consult for a defense in a personal injury case. But when you ask for damages, depending on your venue, whether or not you can ask for a specific sum, you know, what we've learned is if you make a reasonable argument for a specific sum, a jury will either under or over adjust from the figure you give them. They tend to go to that figure if it's reasonable. And if you ask for too much money and you haven't laid a proper foundation for it, sometimes as from a plaintiff standpoint, they won't come in as much as they would have had you not asked for a specific sum. But anchoring uh, can tie into a lot of different things. I mean, uh, everything is compared to what? So you can anchor from medical bills. You can anchor from how far it is to the moon, <laughs> how far the Mars thing was, I mean, you can anchor in a lot of different ways throughout a case, one way or another, depending if you want it high or low. And it's not magic, but people tend to go to that anchor. And there are all kinds of studies that back that up to the point now that there are a lot of briefs and arguments trying to keep the plaintiff's lawyer from asking for some certain. There's also some studies that support that it's okay to do that. And it is helpful for the jury if you make a sound argument because the what they want to know, they want to do the right thing. And as a plaintiff's lawyer, I feel like it's my job to help them do it right. And so any information I can give them to help them be fair and just, uh, I think we should be allowed to do it on both sides. Yeah. And I guess the 10th commandment is to build the frame. What do you mean by build the frame? Well, 
that goes back to, uh, I guess we could go back to Mark Mandel's book, but, but think about framing. And framing is overall, and it can be minor. For example, if you ask uh, an eyewitness, how far were you from the crash when you say you saw it? And they say 75 feet. Or you ask the question, how close were you from the crash when you say you saw it? And they say 75 feet. In the jury's mind, they will perceive them being closer if you use the term close and further if you use the term far. So framing can be used in a myriad, multiple ways, not only in language, but in overall case frame, in the order of, of the presentation of the facts. Um, framing's a big part of the trial story, but if you put all this together in the story and then you test it and, and you modify it and you shape it to get it consistent with their beliefs in the best way you can, you got the best chance of getting a, a fair result in that case. Now, you've come up with a different approach to uh, putting a case together or preparing a case. Yeah, we decided that when we were teaching all this stuff and going through it, uh, it was helpful, but it, it seemed scattered to people. They were having trouble figuring out how to use it. And so we, we came up with what we call a process, not a formula. Most of us, and I did for 30 years, 35 years, I looked at the case, I got facts, I did research on the law, say, okay, this is the case. Here's the elements I need to win my case. And I tried to put the facts into the law. What we have learned is sometimes jurors don't care that much about the law. <laughs> and sometimes they, they care about the facts, but not in the way we would think they care about the facts. So if you're going to use the, the jury bias model to analyze the case, which we say you should, then if you follow these steps in preparation, we don't even consider the law to start with. You're, Lawyers know whether or not legally they, they, they've got a cause of action. So we put the law in the, in the backseat to start with, and we start with the facts. What are the facts? But we never leave the facts, as I said earlier, because they can always be framed a different way. They can be added to. You can leave something out. You can add it in. You can frame it a certain way. So you never leave the facts. Once you get the facts you think you can work with, knowing you go back to them over and over again, then you do the jury research and determine what your potential jury believes. And then you take what you think they believe and you try to determine the essence of the case. They used to call them themes or case core. What is the essence? What, why does this damn case make a difference? Why? would the jury care about this case? And you, and you try to find the essence of the case. And then the idea is you take that essence and the case core, and you try to come up with a short rendition of an explanation of the case. Maybe, maybe no more than a paragraph. If you, or some people might say a tweet. If you get in the elevator on the 10th floor with a 12-year-old at the courthouse and you're going down to the first floor and the 12-year-old the says, are you a lawyer? And say, yeah. What are you doing up here? Well, I have a case. What is a case about? Can you tell them before you get to the first floor what the case is about? You should. Because if you can tell them what the case is about, that's what you hang on to. Because defense if you're the plaintiff, the defense is getting you to wanting you to chase rabbits everywhere. You want to hold on to the case core. What is the real essence of the case? Have your trial story in a paragraph to start with what the case is about and build it from there. 
So, you know, you get to there and now you're at the point where you, how do you frame and reframe that? We've talked about framing to get it in the best order you can. And then um, you've now developed into your trial story, right? So now we want to test it and modify it. You test it if you can in focus groups or mini mock trials or even a mock trial and you, you change it, you change it. And you notice I hadn't said anything about the law. Yep. Because you want to know what matters to your potential jury, not what matters to you. And if you present that case in the way you see it, then the jury is going to, a potential jury and a focus group is going to decide it from that, but that may not be what they're interested in or what they want to know. So the concept focus group is discovering what they think matters, not what you think matters. So you test it and modify it. And then you, you go back and look at their belief system. Are we consistent with their beliefs? If my is my trial story now consistent with the beliefs that I have learned that they have? And if it is, you got a leg up. Then you then you go back and do your board dire work on your board dire, work on your opening, work on the law, go down that way. But building that case, following those steps is a way we think you use the model, uh, the Ten Commandments, to ensure you're going to present the very best case you can present, which is all we can do. And we find it works. I mean, we found it, it can move a case. It's not going to make a winner if it's a loser, but it'll move at 15, 20 percent one way or the other by following that process. Wow. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. If someone wants to learn more or wants to maybe work with you, because you do consulting as well as practicing, am I right? I do. Yeah. Uh, what's the best way to learn to learn more about you or to get a hold of you? Well, um, I've got several email addresses. One is Greg at winningworks.com is a good way. And then uh my my office phone number, uh, even whether it's a case for us in the office or consulting case, they would get the message to me. It's uh, 256-543-0400. We have a winning works number too. If you want to go to a web page, you could find that. And our book, Winning Case Preparation, uh, has all of this that I've talked about in the book. It took us forever to write it because there are four of us trying to write it. And um, it'd been easier, I think, for any one of the four of us to write the whole thing, but <laughs> we did it that way. And and we think it's really, really helpful. Trial Guides and AAJ sort of co-sponsor that book. I think you have to order it through Trial Guides, though. You do. I, I ordered it through Trial Guides. Did you get it yet? I don't know because I was supposed to go in the office today to go – it should be there today, but I was told that I have child care duty today. So. Well, I understand yeah. that. I appreciate you taking time for us, Michael. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. 
If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.